All right, if you have a Bible, would love for you to open it with me to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to be in chapter 9 as we continue our Advent study called An Ancient Advent. So go ahead and make your way there. If, if you're new this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles provided in the pew in front of you, so feel free to grab that and take it home with you as our Christmas gift uh, on this Christmas season to you. So feel free to do that. You'll find the book of Isaiah either just by opening your Bible to the middle and looking around or by going to the table of contents and you'll eventually get there. Uh, The book of Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Over the next three weeks leading to our Christmas Eve service, um, we're going to do a study that's a bit unique when it comes to Advent because instead of looking at the stable in Bethlehem and the shepherds and the angels and the the wise men or any of these stories that are around the narrative of Jesus, instead we are looking at Christmas through the lens of this Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. Now, if you are new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, you need to understand that the Old Testament, everything that you read about in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, is prior to the birth of Jesus. And so when we come to a book like Isaiah, we're actually going back about 700 years before Jesus was even born, which is why we're calling it an ancient advent. Isaiah was one of these individuals that the Bible called prophets. Uh, The prophets were God's mouthpieces. They were uh, proclaimers of his word. He would give his message to his people through the prophets. And one of the main messages that the prophets continually brought about in the Old Testament was this great news of a coming Savior, a Messiah, a King who would rescue his people and bring about their ultimate salvation. This was something that they were excited about. They they looked forward to it. And uh, Bible scholars will tell us that there are 320 of these prophecies found in the Old Testament. That's a lot, right? 320 specific things about this coming Messiah, where he would be born, how he would die, what he would be like. Well, if you think about that, the odds of someone accidentally embodying even a fraction of 320 prophecies, it's almost beyond imagination, right? I was reading an article this last week about how the CIA helps agents to connect with one another. And when when one agent's meeting another agent, there are about six identifying marks that they have to go through to make sure that they get the right person. So, for instance, if if I were the director and you were an agent, uh, it would look something like this. Hey, tomorrow at 1 p.m., I want you to go to Pier 7, right? So that's one identifying mark. You're going to go to Pier 7. And when you get to Pier 7, you're going to look for the fifth bench on the right, number two. When you get to that bench, you're going to see a girl, and she's going to be wearing uh, red boots, and she's going to have a Timbuktu backpack, and she's going to be sitting there tying her shoes. That's mark number three. As you walk by her, what is she going to do? She's going to stand up and she's going to ask you for directions. You're going to say, well, where are you from? And then she's going to say this. She's going to say the most beautiful place in all the world, Barstow, California. And then then you will know that's the person because no one else would say Barstow, California, right? Those are identifying marks. There's six things that you have to know in order to get the right person. Well, the Bible says there are 320 of those identifying marks about this coming Messiah. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus embodies every single one of them. He is the fulfillment. He is what all of the Old Testament is pointing to, which is why we are 120 of those today. 
Now, you'll be thankful to hear that this morning we are not going to look at all 320 of those prophecies. We will not do that today, but we are going to look at one very important one we find in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read about it in verses 6 and 7. And so, if you would, I'm going to read God's word this morning. This is the word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. Now, over the next few weeks, the next two after this, we're going to be looking at all of that passage. But today, I just want us to concentrate on that first phrase. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, to understand this promise of of a child, it's helpful to to understand the situation in this, this period when Isaiah is actually prophesying to God's people. Last week, if you were here, Mike talked about how Isaiah was talking to a people who were walking in darkness, and that's absolutely accurate. God's people at this time were walking in spiritual darkness because they had disobeyed God. They had worshipped the gods of of other governments and other kingdoms of the people around him. They had not served him and served him alone. And so it says that God, he removed his face from them. They were no longer living in the light of his blessing. And one of the results of that was turmoil, political turmoil. Now, by this point in the book of Isaiah, uh, the country of Israel had split into two kingdoms. And you can read all about this in 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Chronicles. But but Israel was split into the northern kingdom, which was also called Israel or Ephraim. And then you had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Now, the one thing that you need to know about both of these kingdoms is that they were both Israel, and yet they had different leadership. And oftentimes, they had very evil leaders. Well, Isaiah was in the southern kingdom, and he was prophesying during the time of a very, very evil king named Ahaz. I said it was a time of political turmoil, and the reason for that is that there was another big country called Assyria. And At that time, Assyria was kind of the new bully on the block, right? All of the nations feared that Assyria was going to attack. They were larger than the other nations. They had a greater army than the other nations, and so everybody lived in fear of Assyria. But what happened was that the northern kingdom went to a neighboring country and they said, here's the thing, let's let's create a political alliance. If Assyria is going to attack us, let's let's come together and say, hey, if they attack one of us, the other is going to defend the other. And so they put together this alliance, the northern kingdom and, and another country called Syria. Not us, Syria, but Syria. Well, at the same time, they said, you know what, let's go get Judah. We think Judah should be part of our alliance. And so they came to King Ahaz in the southern kingdom, and they say, we want you to join our alliance. Well, Ahaz doesn't like either one of them. And so he says no, and that ticks them off. And so they put together a plan. You know what we're going to do? Instead of just having an alliance, let's go attack Judah, the southern kingdom, get rid of King Ahaz, and put another king in his place so that they will fight with us if Assyria attacks. I'm giving you a lot of history. I realize that, okay? Try to stick with me. So, The picture here is you've got these countries fighting over who is Judah going to be part of an alliance with. Well, at the same time, what happens? 
Assyria, the big bully on the block, comes to Judah and says, hey, don't join their alliance. Join us. If you join us, we will protect you from them. So you've got all these nations all around Judah, the southern kingdom, and they're all saying, we will be your protection. Join us. And it's into this chaos that God sends Isaiah to go give a very clear message to Ahaz, the king of Judah. He comes to Ahaz and God says this, do not join either one of those alliances. He says, I will be your God. I will be your protection. I will be your salvation. Do not put your trust in these other nations. Well, he knows that's a big ask, right? I mean, if you're Ahaz, you've got nations all around you battling. He knows that's a big ask. And so God tells Ahaz, you can ask any sign from me. I'll move heaven and earth to show you that I will be true to my promise. Just ask for a sign. He commands Ahaz, ask for a sign. But here's the thing. Ahaz does not want to obey God. And so he says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. He knows if he asks for a sign, he's going to have to obey. But he wants to do what he thinks is most reasonable and prudent in that moment. And so God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And that's where we come to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which is a direct connection to what we read just a moment ago in Isaiah chapter 9. He says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Which of course connects with chapter 9 where he says what? For to us a child is given to us, a son is born. For a moment this morning, I want you to try to put yourself in Ahaz's shoes. I want you to think what what he must be thinking. Alliances. And God comes to him with this sign that he will give him a child. If you're Ahaz, are you not thinking, what could a child possibly do to get rid of my problems? Is that not what your thought would be? You see, Ahaz is at a crossroad in this moment. And it's an important crossroad that each one of us faces. Here's the crossroad. Would he seek salvation and protection through man, through armies and politics and and alliances and human wisdom and his own gut feeling, or would he seek salvation through simple trust in God's unexpected promise? This is a question that Ahaz was at. He was at a crossroad in this moment. And friends, I believe this is a crucial question for you to ask. Because in this room, I know in a room like this that you come into this room with problems. You come into this room with very real problems. Some of you have health problems that are staring you at the face. Some of you in this room have relational problems. Some of you have problems with your children. Some of you have problems with your parents. Uh, Some of you come in here and you're, you're walking through anxiety and depression. You're walking with significant stress. Some of you have job problems. Perhaps some of you are here today and you just recently found out that you cannot have children. Or perhaps you're here and you, you come in and you're going through a separation. seem much bigger than yours. You come in with problems and these problems like Ahaz, these problems seem much bigger than you. You can't handle them and you're desperate for God to do something. Now in the middle of that, the question becomes, how can God's promise of a child be any hope in the midst of our problems? How can this coming child, how can this coming son that he mentions in any way give hope 
to the midst of our problems, in the midst of our darkness. Well, this morning, I want you to consider this statement. This is the main point this morning. As you look at this text, I want you to consider this. The ultimate answer to our problems can only be found in trusting in the unexpected gift of God's promised son. This is what we're going to see in the book of Isaiah. The ultimate answer to all of our problems, no matter what problem you come in with, can only be found in trusting in the unexpected gift of God's promised son. Now I say unexpected because everything about this promise that God makes to to Isaiah or to Ahaz and the people of God, it's unexpected. And yet that's not a bad thing, is it? If you're anything like me, uh, some of the best gifts that I've ever received have been surprises. They were unexpected. I had no idea I was getting them, but then when I got them, I'm like, wow, that's exactly what I want. Uh, As you grow older, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, Rachel and I, in our marriage, I think the, the longer we've been married, most of my gifts to Rachel are what she's been hinting at for about nine months. It's not much of a surprise when we show up on Christmas Day, but when it comes to our kids, that's not how we go. We want to make sure that our kids don't know what they're getting. We want to make sure it's a surprise. So I, I don't take Brady to Target, buy him a basketball, and say, hey, here's your Christmas gift. Let's go wrap it up, and you can open it on Christmas. That's not exciting for Brady, no. I want Brady on Christmas morning to open it and, and to say, wow, this is not what I expected, but now that I have it, it's exactly what I need. Well, friends, I would submit to you this morning that the same thing is true of Jesus. As you read this passage, you need to realize that Jesus was not on the world's Christmas list. He's not the gift that Ahaz would have been asking for in that moment. In light of Ahaz's circumstances, you read this and you think, well, what could more, be more weak than a child? What could be more foolish than, than a child giving birth through a virgin? I mean, this doesn't make sense, God. It's totally unexpected. If you were to ask Ahaz, what kind of gift do you want under the Christmas tree? I have no doubt, without hesitation, he would say, power. I want power under the tree. I want power to get rid of my enemies, all those things that are coming against me. I need power. And yet Jesus, or God, promises the opposite. He promises a child, a picture of weakness. Well, of course, the New Testament picks up this theme of this child born to a virgin. It connects it with Jesus. And and that makes total sense because from the world's perspective, everything about Jesus was weak. When you look at Jesus' life, Jesus was born in weakness. He didn't descend from the clouds as a mighty king, right? No, he came as a baby, born in a stable to a poor teenage girl. What could be more weak than that? His first guests uh, were not the who's who of society, but instead it was shepherds, the very lowest class of society in that day. That's all that showed up. You look at his life, and it was one of weakness. He didn't walk around as a politician. He didn't walk around and, and have just everybody come out. No, Jesus was a wandering teacher who was followed by this ragtag group of 12 disciples for most of his life. And then, of course, you come to his death, and his death looked like total weakness, He gave himself over without fight to his enemies. Isaiah gives us another prophecy about the Savior in Isaiah chapter 53. And this points to Jesus. It says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Though he was sinless, Jesus gave himself over to his enemies and they beat him. And they mocked him, they spit on him, and ultimately, they crucified him on a cross. 
a death usually reserved for the lowest of criminals. From beginning to end, Jesus' life was one of weakness from the world's perspective. And that's why King Ahaz, as he looks at this promise of a child, and that's why each one of us, when we look at Jesus, it's why we say, forget it. This cannot be my salvation. This cannot be the answer to my problems. He can't be the gift that God has promised. I would submit to you this morning that the reason almost all of us reject Jesus, God's promised son, is that we have wrongly diagnosed the root of all of our problems. You see, for each one of us in this room, we all think that our main problems are caused by people out there, right? By circumstances out there, by conditions outside of us. They are the problem. If you don't believe me, watch the news. doesn't matter if you're watching CNN or Fox News. Each one of them says what? They're the problem. Democrats, Republicans, they're the problem. You see this a lot in our culture uh, between the the haves and the have-nots. Those that have a lot, what do they say? Well, the have-nots are the problem. I worked really hard to to achieve these things. I worked really hard to do these things. If everybody had the same work ethic I did, our society would be great. But they're the problem. They're lazy. Uh, They they, they don't work hard. They don't have the same drive that I have. They're the problem. But then what happens? On the other side, you have the have-nots. Those with very little. And what do they say? The haves are the problem. They have a lot and they don't share. They don't share their wealth. They don't share their, their privilege. They're the problem. I don't say that to say that either of those are untrue, but to say this, we all look at our problems and say, it's something outside of me. It's those conditions, it's those circumstances, it's those people. But friends, God's analysis of our problem is very different. And therefore, that's why you see the gift that he has promised in this text is different than we expect. The Bible's analysis is that the primary problem is not out there, but it's where? It's right here. The problem is not my conditions. The problem is me, and it's you. It's our heart. It's sin. The problem is that each one of us is a sinner. Each one of us has said, I choose my way over God's way. Each one of us has become self-centered, thinking that we are the center of the universe rather than the God who created us. This sin takes root in our heart and then it's demonstrated in our attitudes and our behaviors and and it leads to all the brokenness we see around us. The darkness of our world is not someone else's fault. It's mine. Which means this. At the end of the day, what we need most is not something to come into our world and to fix them. We need a God who can fix us. We need a God who can fix us. We needed someone who could show us our sin. We needed someone that could die for our sin. We needed someone that could cleanse us of our sin and forgive us of our sin and bring us into a right relationship with God. That's the kind of Savior we needed. And the good news of Christmas is this. That is exactly the gift that God has provided. Our passage today, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. As we continue studying this passage next week, it's going to become very clear that this is not a promise of just your average child. No, he's described how wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In this verse, God is promising nothing less than his own son, Jesus Christ. 
Christ. In a move that no one in the Old Testament could have comprehended, God was not going to send just another prophet or another king to fix Israel's issues. He was going to take on human flesh, being fully God and fully man, in order to rescue them from their greatest problem, the root of all their problems, and that is the problem of sin. We read about Jesus in the book of John. It was read earlier, and I want to read it again. John 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and that Word is talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But then, of course, in verse 14, what does it say? And the Word, so God Himself, became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You can read the Gospels to get the full picture of Jesus' life, but then the Apostle Paul says this about Jesus. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, God's promise of a child, his son, was exactly what Ahaz needed. And friends, it's exactly what each one of us needs today. Without Jesus, it does not matter how much we have in our bank account. The hope of true security will always elude you. It does not matter this morning how much you you accomplish in your work life, in your family life. That true contentment will always be just out of reach. It does not matter, friends, how much pleasure you plunge into. Lasting joy will always remain an unfulfilled dream apart from Jesus. And no matter how much we may take care of our bodies and do Whole30 and the keto diet and intermittent fasting, whatever you're into this morning, Each one of us, apart from Jesus, has the same end, and that is death and separation from God. We needed this gift of his promised son, this child that became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve, and was resurrected, guaranteeing that his his victory over death was once and for all. We needed Jesus, the promised son. And what I love about this passage, it says that we don't have to earn Jesus. What does it say? A child is given to you. This work of Jesus and what he's done, it is given to us, which means it's 100% a gift of his grace. It cannot be earned. In fact, we unearned it. We demerited his salvation. We demerited his rescue with our sin. But even in light of that, he has sent his son for us. So a question for you this morning is simply this. Have you put all of your trust and hope in God's promised son, Jesus Christ? Have you given him the government of your own life? Have you asked him to be your savior and king, submitting to him with everything in your life? A Christian is simply someone who says this. When it comes down to it, a Christian thought it was him. I thought it was my conditions. I thought it was my circumstances. But God, I finally realized that my greatest problem is me. It's my heart. I don't need a God who can just change my circumstances. I need a God who can forgive me and change me. We need Jesus. 
But there's one more essential element of this text that I don't want you to miss today. And that's this. The promise that God provided Ahaz required a lot of patience and waiting. 700 years to be exact. How many of you like to wait for 700 years? None of you in this room. We live in a Mickey D's culture, right? We want fast food. We, we want two-hour delivery from Amazon in San Francisco. We want all of these things about five minutes ago. We, we can even have life's greatest questions answered by Siri just like that, right? We want immediate results. And that's what's hard about God's promises. They never come quickly. You look at God's promises and they don't happen overnight. The whole idea behind Advent is this idea of waiting. Uh, in our house, we have like five different Advent calendars. Somehow we've just continued to add them up. And so we literally have five different calendars. And I feel bad for our kids because what is Advent? It's every day they go to the calendar and they realize one thing. Christmas is not today. They go the next day, 24 days in a row. Nope, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But that is so important in the Christian life because we need to understand that the life of a believer is one of waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. God's people had to wait 700 years, and yet here's what I want you to see. God is never late. You may think that he's late. I would imagine some of you are facing some things today where you think God is late to your situation, but he is not. He's never been late, not once. And that is true of God's promised son. Paul only talks about the birth of Jesus one time in the New Testament. And this is what he says in Galatians 4, verse 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That phrase, fullness of time, is a Greek phrase that means at just the right moment, he sent forth his son. God is never late. He knows exactly what he's doing. You say, well, well Ryan, well, what's up with this fact that we're still waiting, then if, if Jesus was God's answer, if his coming was God's answer to the darkness, then why are we still waiting? Why do we still have suffering? Why do we still have death? Why do we still have all these bad things if Jesus, God's promised son, was supposed to be the answer? It's a great question. I want to give you a statement that I heard by J.D. Greer, another pastor, recently, and I thought it was super simple but also super, super helpful. He said this, the first advent brought relief from sins. The second advent will bring relief from our suffering. Now here, here's what that means. This is a very short Christmas theology lesson. The first advent, through the first advent, through Jesus' coming and taking on flesh and living a perfect sinless life and dying on the cross and resurrecting, through his first advent, he gave us freedom from both the power and penalty of sin. He took away the obstacle that keeps us from a relationship with God, right? He gave us refuge from our sin. But here's the thing. There's a second advent. And that's what we wait on. We as God's people, we've seen the fulfillment of that first advent. Jesus has already come. But what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that he's still coming back. He will return. But this time he will not return as a baby, but he will return as king of kings and lord of lords, the judge of all. He will make all wrong things right. He will bring justice and put an end to sin and death forevermore. And so just like God's people in the Old Testament, we too as his people are a people in waiting. 
We're waiting for him to fulfill that promise, waiting for him to take away our suffering, waiting for him to wipe every tear from our eyes and to bring the peace that he has promised long ago. We are called to believe and live every aspect of our lives in light of God's promise to us. But here's the danger, and this is a danger each one of you faces. One of the greatest spiritual dangers we face is that instead of of bringing our hardships and our problems into the light of God's promise, instead of trusting him and going to God, what do we do? We take our problems into our own hands. And sadly, that's exactly what Ahaz did in the Old Testament. God had given him this promise. He had given him, I will be your protection. My presence will be with you. Emmanuel, God with us, I will be with you. But Ahaz says, no, I don't want it. And what did he do? He went to Assyria, the big bad bully of the time. And he said, I will enter into an alliance with you. Not only did this end up not helping Israel, but it backfired and it eventually led to their exile. They're being kicked out of the promised land. Ahaz, for his part, went crazy from this point on. He literally began to worship all the gods of the other nations. And he lived a very sad, depressed life until his death. It's really not a great story. It's not a great Christmas story. But I hope at least this morning that is a warning to each of us this morning. One of the greatest threats to your spiritual health this Christmas season is a reluctance to trust God in these seasons of waiting. Taking things into your own hands, doing what you think is most prudent. I want you to think for a moment about the different ways that this could play out. Maybe this morning you're lonely and discontent waiting in your singleness. So you say, you know what, I'm going to compromise who I'm willing to date or even who I'm willing to marry. Or maybe this morning you're unhappy in your marriage. And so instead of going to God, instead of trusting God and walking with him and living out your call as a spouse, you you go and you find someone else and you cheat on your husband or your wife. Or maybe you just escape the marriage altogether in pornography. We don't trust God, we take things into our own hands. Maybe this morning you're unhappy with your level of income and and how many possessions God has given you. So you say, I'm going to go and take this into my own hands, and you go into debt. Or you make some unethical decisions to try to get ahead of where you are right now. Maybe you're angry about your past, so rather than forgiving, trusting that God can bring about ultimate justice, you say, no, I'm going to harbor bitterness, and I'm going to try to get even. Maybe instead of discontentment with your job. You're, you're always saying, I'm always looking for the next thing. I, I'm never looking at what God's doing here. I'm always wanting something more, and you're trying to be controlling. You're controlling of your kid's life. You're controlling of your work life, thinking that you can handle it. This plays out in a myriad of ways, but the common denominator is this. We supplement our trust in God by taking things into our own hands. This morning, as we close, the message I want you to hear more than anything else is this. God what he is doing in your life. God is not late. This morning, if you are in a season of waiting, you're waiting in the midst of a problem, let me just suggest to you that God has a purpose in your waiting. He has a purpose. I mean, I think about uh, Rachel. I think if I were to ask my wife, what is the, the hardest period of waiting that you've ever had to live through? I have no doubt her answer would be our three children giving birth to them. For nine months, there was discomfort, there's pain, there's all these things. But you know what? We don't want to rush that process. Why? Because within Rachel, something amazing is being developed. If we rush that, that, that what's in here will die. It'll go away. 
But friends, the same thing is true in each one of our lives. In our seasons of waiting, God is doing something. He is forming something within us. But the question is, will we get past that and just take it into our own hands, not allowing God to do that this morning? The good news this morning is that as you wait, he has not left you alone. What was the name of that promised son, the child that God promised? What was his name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. In our waiting, we do not wait alone, but instead God has given us his spirit to guide you and encourage you, sustain you, correct you, strengthen you, and carry you until that day his promise is fulfilled in your life. This morning, I would just suggest this. We are at the same crossroad that Ahaz was at. Will we seek salvation, protection, and life through our own efforts? Will we take it into our own hands or we receive them as a gift through simple trust in God's unexpected promise in God's Son? It's an important question for each one of us to ask. Jesus is the answer to each one of our issues. He is the answer to our sin, and one day he will be the ultimate answer to every piece of suffering that you are walking through today. He will return, and as Mike said last week, he is worth the wait. May we put our trust in God's promised son.